The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race strips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT22 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and SlayRx. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm the father of twin boys, and I'm a college professor. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am a CPA and a mom to three girls. And I'm Eric Hall. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm an engineer, father to three teenagers, and the husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. 
Very good. Very good. I almost started laughing in the introduction because I went back to introducing myself as someone from Atlanta, Georgia. I am from Metro Atlanta. I'm from Marietta. I'm currently sitting in Marietta, a distinction that people in the Atlanta area certainly would make. But um, but the place that both of you are from, but but not where either of you are sitting right now. Um, but it's also where Danielle Friedman, who we interviewed last week, is from, even though she wasn't sitting there and she's not sitting there now. Um, I enjoyed our interview with Danielle. What'd y'all think? I thought it was awesome. Yeah, Marietta sounds better when you've got the New York Times best-selling author who's also from Marietta. <laughs> but otherwise, <laughs> we spend the rest of our lives telling everybody we grew up in Atlanta. <laughs> right, right, for sure, for sure. Well, we're going to spend a little bit of time today um, talking about uh, the Boston Marathon, which is, of course, next week on Marathon Monday. Um, and we're going to spend a little bit of time debriefing our interview uh, with Danielle Friedemann. And we're going to talk a little bit about our book of the quarter for the next quarter, um, because I kind of like this whole book of the quarter thing. I realize that that now after Michelle, you picked such a good book of the quarter. The pressure is on since I have picked this book of the quarter. So now I'm suddenly worried that this book is not going to be as good as that last one. I guess we'll see. And this um, book has been one of our final three options the last four quarters, pretty much, right? right. Like you've been waiting a year to pick this book. So. I have, I have. And I'm excited about it, actually. But we'll talk more about it in just a little while. Uh, before we do that, let's hear what you've been up to. Michelle, what you been up to? How's your week? Oh, it's pretty good. I think I caught the uh, F1 addiction. Hmm. <laughs> I <laughs> spent a long time. Uh, man, this stuff appears everywhere. I don't know if it's the people I follow or the stuff that I read, but I cannot listen to any running podcast without hearing something about F1. And I finally gave in and I started the Netflix documentary. Hmm. And I don't know how many runs I've run on the treadmill the last 10 days, but it's all because <laughs> I just want to watch Netflix. I gotcha. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's why I can't watch stuff because I just get so addicted. I just mm -hmm. want to get through every episode, mm -hmm. but that's, I, I, I totally understand all these like little nuanced things that people say or people refer to that I feel like I've been left in the dust kind of the last two years about. So yeah. Um, you know, our friend of the podcast who will be coming on in a couple of months to talk about cycling, uh, Justin Dugan, who we've talked about a few times here. Um, he and I went on a run together in January and he had mentioned um, Drive to Survive, the, uh, the Netflix documentary about F1 to me. And so I watched about the first two and a half seasons of it. I watched into season three um, and then ultimately decided I wasn't into it anymore. Um, and ended up stopping watching it. Um, but there is a season four coming out. Didn't you say that you were listening to a, a podcast with, with Des Linden and she was talking about how she's become a fan of, of F1? So Sidious Mag released a, Des, a podcast today with Des on it, actually, which is kind of always fun to hear her and how she feels like her buildup is going before um, a big race, notably Boston uh, next week. And she just talks about it. And I think a lot of people, I mean, the trend seems to be to just make the comparison to, you know, what Netflix did and what um, Formula One did for everybody who isn't kind of one of the top two or three teams and how they brought an awareness to the sport. And I think female viewership is up um, like over 160% or something. And I, I think a lot of the, you know, the media in distance running, you know, a lot of the lower, well, not the lower tier, but like not the NBC, just the people out there trying to produce content and give fans what they want. 
they're always running a parallel as to how many amazing stories there could be, you know, in track and field and road running and, and ultra running. If somebody would just kind of get a camera crew and, you know, film the people that aren't the ones that are always taking first, second or third at, at the big meets. And I see the parallel. I mean, I really do. I see the draw. I see the, um, you know, it's a, it's a team sport, but it's an individual sport. I just, man, it is fascinating how much money is in F1. Like I cannot imagine, you know, track and field getting anywhere near that type of coverage, but I do, I am starting to understand why it's almost impossible to follow anyone in the mainstream running kind of media world, social media world and not get an F1 reference. So I've caught the bug. <laughs> and Eric, Eric, you, you've, you've watched the Netflix series too. I know, right? Yes. Uh, I've already finished season four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No, so I, I have a, I have a few friends. Um, one of the ladies who works with me, who's I've known her for about 12 years now, her and her husband follow the, the actual F1 series. So they're, they watch the drive to survive series after they've watched the entire season. And up until COVID, they would travel to the different courses, one per year, maybe two, and actually watch a race. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, her thing is they like the drive to survive, uh, drive to survive series, but in order to be an F1, like a true F1 fan before drive to survive, you just had to like racing mm-hmm. like because you really didn't know the in-depth stories behind everybody mm-hmm. but the, the 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 nature of what um, netflix did for the sport uh can't be uh can't be calculated almost mm-hmm. <laughs> because i think we read i think all the three of us read the same article or at least one of us posted it to everybody else where the f1 you know, is really just a marketing campaign. It's all about, you know, getting the names out there. And I think the the marketing uh, value went from 6 billion to 15.3 billion or million. Uh, shoot, I don't even know the numbers for that. It, it, but it, it almost tripled in value mm-hmm. after Drive to Survive started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. no, it was, it, was, it was massive and it's had a huge impact on it. Um, and it's, it's, you can even see that as the series goes on, like season one, they spend their time talking to a lot of the the mid tier teams at top. At yeah, most. Mercedes and Ferrari were didn't even talk to them in season to one. Nothing to do with season yeah. one. Yeah, and then season two, it's like, oh, now we get to talk to the top two teams because it had such a it made such a splash and had such an impact on F one. Yeah, for sure. Um, which which is the thing that really inspired me to watch season two because season one you hear about Lewis Hamilton, Lewis Hamilton. They're talking so much about him and this rarefied space. And, and you never see an interview with them. And then in season two, it's like, hey, they got Lewis Hamilton. You know, they're actually going to interview him. Um, and I'm a, I, I mean, to the degree that I'm a fan of F1, I, I'm a fan of Lewis Hamilton. But yeah, the, the thing that was a deal breaker for me, and we don't need to go too deeply into it, is that there are 10 F1 teams and there are two drivers on every team. Um, and, and the teams all compete against one another, of course. But your biggest rival is the driver that's on the same team as you. And that to me just, it started off as kind of an annoyance. Like I don't like the two people on the same team or essentially each other's top competitor. That, that just was against what my notions of, of what teams are supposed to be. Um, and then as I continued watching it, 
it got to become become a bigger and bigger annoyance such that by the time I got halfway through season three, I was like, all right, it's going to be a deal breaker that that aspect. And I understand that, that that's part of the sport, but that aspect of the sport is something that that turned me off. Um, but. Well, what do you guys think turned on, you know, millions of viewers and like quadrupled its value? I mean, what do you think it is? The drama that Netflix puts into the series? I mean, I understand why the running people like it, but I can't say that it's as prevalent in other circles in my life. Like my colleagues at work are, they have no, they don't even know what it is. Well, I, th I think that, I think that the, the thing that's cool about it, I think there's two things. I think one, and they're going to sound contradictory, but they're not. One is that it's 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 a race to the finish line. I mean, it's it's truly a race. It's all about who crosses the finish line first, right? Um, yeah. And so, so at the very heart of it, it's a race. And so, I think those of us who like racing and those of us who are competitive in pure races, i.e., running races and that sort of thing, really appreciate that. Um, but at the same time. It's, it's not just who gets to the finish line fastest. There's all of these intervening variables that, that have to be balanced and mastered and, and sometimes are completely out of your control that also will influence who's going to actually get to win the race. Um, that's the reason why cycling is so fascinating to watch um, is because there's all of these different scenarios and plot lines that kind of can play out um, over the course of a race. Um, and yeah, I see a lot of parallels that. with that, not only with, with F1, but even with like NASCAR. Um, I, I never understood why people like NASCAR until I started watching and, and becoming a cyclist. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it now. I, I get why it is that this is sort of enthralling and interesting because it's not just about who can drive the car the fastest. It's all these various other things around fueling and equipment and avoiding crashes and tactics and drafting and all this other stuff. And F1, I think it's the same way. And so again, I, I think that they're, they sound contradictory that it's a straight race, but it's also not a straight race. Um, yeah. and, and, and I think that's what makes it actually really alluring. Um, what do you think, Eric? Well, I was, I, I think one of the things that Michelle was asking is what made, what makes it so interesting? Mm -hmm. Like the drive to survive portion. Is that mm -hmm. what you were saying? Yeah. I mean, F1. I... Well, no, <laughs> I think if you asked, 90% of the people who watch Drive to Survive to sit and actually watch, you know, the qualifying and the the race, they would drop out because they'd yeah, okay. be bored out of their skulls because they yeah. would not know the story. So I, I think what Drive to Survive has done is it's created a, a storyline, mm -hmm. some of it contrived, honestly. Sure. Uh, I, I won't, I don't want to ruin, and it won't ruin the whole season or anything, but, you know, one of the, they, they focus sometimes on a team. And sometimes they focus on a really, you know, one one specific driver. And it was interesting. They they focused on one driver in season four, and you know he, he struggled the entire season. Um, and there's a whole lot, but I'll just say this: they they made it sound during this one race that he made this just phenomenal decision, and it it changed the trajectory of the race for him and he he did so well and they were so impressed and they the way that they cut the, the story and they told it, it you know it sounded like wow he did this amazing thing at the end of the day he came in last place you know they, they talked about well at least you beat these two people on the radio <laughs> and i started thinking about it and i was like he didn't beat him neither one of those people finished yeah so but but that's the brilliance of drive to survive they took this underdog right everybody likes an underdog 
they built a story around him where he did this one thing in a race um, using his intuition and his knowledge of the area that helped him finish, I guess. It was kind of a big deal that he finished, um, but they they made it sound like this victory, which everybody loves to see. So I, I think it's just a, a better way of telling the story. But again, I'd say 90% of the people who watch Drive to Survive would not watch an entire F1 race. Sure. I am encouraged. Inter interesting point. I, I that, that makes me think about how, like when you watch Olympic track and field, NBC <laughs> goes in and, add, or even you watch a marathon on television, mm -hmm. like whoever's covering it will add in all this extra garbage, you know? Um, and, and we're always like, why don't you just let us watch the race? Like those of us who, who are runners are, we're always like, why don't you just let us watch the marathon? Quit interrupting it with like human interest stories and stuff. Like, let us just watch, tell us what the splits are um, and let it, let us watch the race as it unfolds here. Um, and I guess to your point, that's what they're trying to do is that they're trying to get more people involved the way that Netflix has gotten people involved with F1. Um, right. So. What's paying for F1? What pays for F1? What pays for? I mean, for... they have their, they're paying for it. No, they're it's like... the advertising. They have to keep your eyes on the race so you will see the Red Bull cars. Mm -hmm. So you will see the other sponsors of Red Bull. So you'll see the tire manufacturers and the automobile manufacturers. That's and, the what... and the Puma shoes. Exactly. Um... And for the marathon, it's about the, the commercials, right? So if, if they can't keep you and the person who is not a marathon runner watching it, they've lost a set of eyes and eyes spend money. I do love that Puma is such a huge sponsor. I think it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I ran today. I did my uh, a marathon length workout uh, in my Deviate Nitro Elites since I am and a few weeks they? out from a marathon. Uh, they felt good, but I was, as I was telling Eric, for some reason, the sweat didn't get off my feet really well. And so like my socks were really, really soggy at the finish, um, much more so than I would normally expect. And so I'm not real sure what that's all about. I'm going to have to kind of look into that and maybe uh, see if anybody else has had a similar experience here. Um, I did stay on the treadmill for my uh, for my workout today. And I was going to ask you this, Michelle. Yeah, my wow. my allergies have been bothering me a lot. Um, and you know how it's possible that you can actually develop allergies as you get older. Um, I think that, that after 47 years of being exposed to the vicious pollen counts that happen in the South during, uh, March and April, um, that I've actually developed enough of an allergy to pollen that it bothers me. Um, Last few years, I had gotten to where I would have like headaches and be a little bit tired this time of year. Um, but now I actually have more traditional allergy symptoms. And I came home from work today and I was outside playing with my sons a little bit before I was going to go run. And just being outside playing with them a little bit in the backyard started bothering my allergies. And so the prospect of going outside and running then for an hour outside just didn't appeal. So that was what changed the plans from the rolling loop mm -hmm. to, to staying <laughs> yeah yeah and and I, from a training point of view i want to be on the rolling loop that's where i wanted to be yeah and if it had rained last night i would have been on the rolling loop but <laughs> but but yeah i ended up doing the same workout that i had planned to do otherwise but i ended up doing it indoor in order to duck the pollen um which... that workout indoors would would have me drenched with sweat i mean is it was it the shoe 
is it just that you ran that hard workout indoors? I don't know. I don't know. So the workout I did was it was 42 minutes as seven sets of six minutes, which was four minutes at marathon pace, and then two minutes in 10 K pace, sort of alternating those two. Um, for right. seven if you're times writing go. this workout down, don't. So, so with, uh, with no rest, with no rest, of course. Um, uh, and so, so it's, a, it's a difficult workout for sure. Um, but, uh, I was glad to get it done and glad to wear my marathon, the shoes I plan to wear in the marathon, at least as of right now, um, in, uh, in the workout. So, so yeah. Yeah. So I have a question about that workout. Mm-hmm. So since you weren't on the rolling loop, yeah, you were on your treadmill, did you adjust mm-hmm. your times? So I didn't, um, if I, if I had been on the rolling loop, I would have gone more by effort than effort. by time. Um, and since I was more on the flat treadmill, I went more by time rather than by effort. Um, uh, and, and I could, right. Um, so, so, so no, I didn't really adjust. I didn't adjust the workout per se. Um, but yeah, the times did ultimately look different, um, than they would have had I been doing outside on a rolling loop. But the, the marathon that I'm doing, as Michelle knows, because she's done it, it kind of goes steadily uphill for the first 10 miles, and then it goes downhill for the next 16 miles. Um, and one of the best ways to train for a downhill marathon or a rolling marathon is to do some marathon-specific workouts on uphills and downhill courses. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I was, I was charged about the, doing this, but yeah, no, pollen. This is not something I've ever had to worry about before. Uh, I was talking to my wife about it beforehand, and I was like, does this make me a wuss? Am I wimping out on this workout? And and she said, no, it's just like any other time when the weather is not appropriate for a workout to do outside. It's just like not going out when it's 95 degrees on an August afternoon. I was like, all right. I mean, the pollen is pretty insufferable right now, Yeah. but yeah. we found a lot of luck with Zizol. It's a newer antihistamine out there. Yeah. X, Y, Z, A, L. It's, it's really awesome. I've, I've, I've never, uh, I've never had to worry about it before. I mean, but, but I, mean, I think, that, I, I think that I've, you know, there, there's, a, there's a, a theory of, of, uh, allergies that say that you can, it's, it's not that you steadily develop an allergy, an allergy, it's that you cross a threshold. Sure. Um, and I, and I may have crossed that threshold over this year, um, which is really not exciting not a threshold I would have wanted to have crossed here. But you can be way less miserable for a few weeks, twice a year by just taking a daily antihistamine. So I probably could, but I've just never had to do it before. I've never sure. had to do it before. Um, all right. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Danielle Friedman's book um, and the conversation we had with her. At one point, Eric, you actually texted us and said, I think this was the best interview that we've ever done. What made you say that? Well, one, I think the familiarity between Michelle and Danielle was was a plus. I think she felt 100% comfortable from the outset. Mm-hmm. Second, I think she had written a book that we had read and we were all interested deeply in the topic. And, and third, she is just an awesome person to talk to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She really, you know, she's really thought deeply, not just about the subject of the book, but beyond it, that, and it really piqued our interest. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, the, a question turned into a thought line, turned into her explaining something that we weren't even thinking about. And I think it just, I don't know, it sounded like a really easy conversation and a really cool topic that we were talking about. 
I agree. I agree. No, she she was, um, for lack of better ways, she was a good interview, you know, which I expected um, because she was a good writer and she clearly knew the subject in and out. She said she spent five years writing the book. Right. Um, and so, you know, you ask that her about anything tangentially related to the book, she's going to know. Right. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of, yeah, I don't know. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, there's, you know, she there thought about all none of, of that. Um, yeah. And, and plus, you know, she's been on the interview circuit, like she said, for the past two months since the book released. And so, so yeah. Um, so, so that, that, that made definitely for a lot of good conversation, but yeah, you mentioned the relationship she had with, with Michelle and we, we purposely shied away from that, but Michelle, tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, I know that there was, there was one vignette that she tells in the book there is this time when she was saying that her mom was supposed to to uh go to aerobics um in the early 80s and and she was unable to go because there was a child care conflict and so she had to stay home and she was sitting there crying at the table and feeling ridiculous about the fact that she was crying wearing this in any other context, ridiculous looking workout gear, but cool workout gear for when you're actually doing a workout. Right. Um, and, yeah. and I remember you said, I think my mom was in that same workout class. <laughs> yeah. I think the part of the book that Danielle was talking about when I said that was when she reflected on her time being put into babysitting when Karen, when her mom went to um, like a jazzercise class. Yeah. Cause she, cause she, went, she went on to say that, that ultimately yeah. the, the jazzercise place got childcare and that was never a problem again. Yeah. yeah. So I, I remember that. And I think we were talking one place was next to Flamingo Joe's and you know, anybody who's ever been around lower Roswell and Johnson Ferry. I mean, there was <laughs> my gym set, like <laughs> this huge jazzercise women's only gym. It changed names a hundred times, but um, yeah, I mean, when I was reading that, it's kind of like, I can picture her mom and like sitting at their dining room table, but my mom also wore the same stuff, <laughs> you know? So I, I feel, um, I feel that a lot of just how we were raised, the area that we were raised in, you know, the privilege that we were raised with, you know, I can just kind of see it all intertwined as to how and why she, she would have written the book. Um, I would describe, uh, like just growing up. I mean, I <laughs> were together a lot. I mean, a lot of stuff was alphabetical. We went to the same synagogue, um, Sunday school, Hebrew school, Hebrew high school, entry middle high school, but it, we didn't have like the same group of friends, but I think it's interesting to read the book and hear just sort of her, um, you know, maybe desires and not like unfulfilled dreams, but just the times that she talks about wanting to be a cheerleader and wanting to be, you know, and having run a season across country, but at the back of the pack. And I guess I was sort of the person that could do the sports but I always like wanted like she had the brain <laughs> like I did really well in school but Danielle was like Yale's type of material <laughs> when we graduated so just to see her I think um you know devote I mean she really is like a lifetime runner so she really does have the academic background the scholarly background she built a career out of writing she's still a distance runner um you know she come down for the peach tree. She's run the New York city marathon. It just kind of felt like a beautiful, I don't know. Like, I just thought she nailed it. <laughs> like but, she just, she just put it all together. So nice. I, I, I agree. She, she put it all together nicely. It's funny for, for, for me, cause you mentioned she ran the New York city marathon. So she ran the New York city marathon the same year I did 2016. 
And so yeah. whenever you read something like that, like she said, I ran the 2000 and I was like, me too, me too. You know, and, and, and you like have this like neat connection. You're like, oh, wow, I was there. I was on the same one. And so, and that was just like this one thing. And at that time it was the largest marathon that had ever been run. And so it's not like, you know, I was in some exclusive club having run the 2016 marathon with her 51,000 other people were also there. Um, sure. But, and so if I had that feeling just when she, she would mention the 2016 New York City marathon, I'm sure that you must've had that feeling like all the time, yeah. right? So like, Oh, I know that jazz size. Oh, I know that. I know that dining room table. I mean, you know. like, it's so embarrassingly stupid, but you don't think when you're, seventh or eighth grade cheerleader wearing a Walton uniform to school when there's like football or basketball that there's all these other people that want to be that person you know in that cheerleading uniform or I didn't even try out for cheerleading in ninth grade but you know like I was kind of over and, and done with it by the time I was you were a middle 14. school you were a middle school cheerleader Michelle yes but I also oh, played all these other sports that is I'm so good to know <laughs> so wow um, but it's I don't know. I think, you know, just, it feels like everybody, as they grow up, you just kind of wind this road of trying to figure out, you know, what you want to be or what you want out of life. Some of it's achievable. Some of it is achievable, but maybe in a different way than your peers or colleagues or parents did it. Um, and I feel like, you know, I was so happy to hear from her that she really, she said like, I like writing books. I enjoyed writing the book. So I'm, I'm excited to, you know, like, I hope this is the beginning of, I would read anything that she writes. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that, um, it was just this amazing, you know, just the vignettes of childhood with the his, historical aspect of the book with all of the feminism woven in. Um, I just, I really loved it. I listened to it twice. I mean, I wasn't, so, you so know. tell me, tell me this. And so one thing, and you and she were, were the same age, you were graduated in the same high school class. You grew up in the same community at the same time, like you said, with a lot of the same privileges, et cetera. Um, and your moms knew one another and y'all knew one another from a very young age and going all the way through high school. So she writes in there and we talked about, this is one of the very first things we talked about with her about her own personal struggle with the mixed messages in fitness that that it's liberatory and it's going to help you and it's going to make you healthier and 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 stronger but then also it will make you better looking and thinner and and all these sorts of things and she talked about her own struggle with that mixed message um is that something that that you coming along kind of struggled with as well i don't think i struggled with it like that i think i more just had a general struggle of I think she fit in better to like a group of friends. And I think I just had more of a general struggle of, I mean, really what it was is I'm just like, I'm an introvert. There's just, I might be like an extroverted introvert or whatever, but you know, I had no problem on a Friday night in high school, just staying home, <laughs> whether it was studying or, or this or that. So I didn't, I think, you know, a lot of the way that, that she found that conflicting, I wasn't really, that wasn't like my focus. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't really where I got stuck the way that she got stuck. Like for me, it was really just purely kind of, um, an outlet for, you know, being competitive and having a really easy way to socialize with people who had common ground just because of whatever sport that I was engaged in. So, so, so you never, you never got hung up around being more desirable, um, not, not, not at that age. Mm -hmm. I just did not care, honestly. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, I probably is, as I got older, you know, I would think, you know, and even now, I mean, there is definitely like that vanity part of it. That's, that's way more, uh, I would say it dominates way more now than it did kind of growing up, but. Very good. Very good. Um, uh, let's talk about a couple other things that kind of stood out. Um, I, I thought the part about synchrony was interesting. Um, so you remember Eric asked the question there towards the end where he said, okay, you made the argument at the finish that one of the things that, that really, um, uh, is heavily featured in most successful exercise programs is this idea of synchrony. Um, but where is synchrony inside of distance running? And, and I, and I, I think that question is an interesting question because, you know, we tend to fetishize in running like the so-called loneliness of the long distance runner. And you kind of have to go out there and be so disciplined and do things by yourself and da, 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 da. Um, and, and so how does synchrony fit with that? And, and you asked that question and she kind of talked about it. And the more I thought about it as she answered, the more I thought about how, well, there is synchrony. It just looks different. You know what I mean? And that this whole idea of the loneliness of the long distance runner might kind of be untrue. Do you know um, that? I mean, I you do have to train by yourself and you kind of race by yourself and you're in a battle against yourself and all that sort of thing. But I mean, to, to like the point that you made in, in the podcast, Eric, like you're still on a course with somebody else. And like, if I go out for a long run, like I did this past Saturday and I'm by myself, okay, I might be solo and I might feel lonely, but at the same time, I'm training for a race that lots of other people are simultaneously training, training for. And there's all sorts of other people that are probably out there on the same Saturday training for that same thing. Do you know what I mean? And so there's, there's. Yeah. There's synchrony, even though you're not in the same, even though you're not sharing space. Yeah, um, she she had this almost the the picture painted in the book, or sort of her perception initially was the the spin class, right? Where everybody's you know pedaling together to the beat of some music, or mm-hmm. you know something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's there's a lot of that. I don't know if you would consider it synchrony during an ultra marathon, but you know, when, when Grace and I ran the beast of the East, Carl Meltzer was out there. Right. And that was, he cool. was out there suffering mm-hmm. while we were suffering. We, we saw him two, at least twice during the race. And, you know, we got to see him slog by us in the middle of the night with his headlamp on in the rain. <laughs> and we were synchronous. <laughs> I also think there's something to be said about just being in synchrony with yourself or being like, being one with the run. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that it has to be a group spin class or a group of people in the long run or a math started a race. I mean, see that. And, I think and, a lot of it is internal for me or can and, be. And I, I don't disagree with you on that, but that's a different point though. That, that, that's a counterpoint because the way that but she I think talks, it's just as valid. Oh yeah. I'm not saying it's invalid. I'm just saying it's a counterpoint. Um, is because the way that she talked about synchrony is she she talked about it as, as it is, you, you, you are part of a movement, right? You, you, you are part of something together. And, and as like, like Eric was just saying, she actually described it in a very, I think, sort of tight space. And the more I thought about the more I wanted to apply that concept to a, in a much more abstract way. Sure. Um, 
And yeah. so, but, but I mean, I don't think it has to be one or the other. Um, I think you can say that, 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 yeah, there's synchrony. And one of the real alluring things about running is that, that by doing it, you're engaging in a communal activity, even though, even if there's nobody else from the community around. <laughs> and also um, I think it changes depending on, you know, depending on the circumstance. Yeah. It, and it, it can change from day to day. It can change from week to week and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, and for sure, I, th I think it can kind of solve both of those things. Um, it probably checks both of those boxes at various times. And that's one of the reasons why we all continue to do it over the course of the years and decades, right? And I think a lot of things, you know, we the, the growing, I'd say the explosion of online cycling mm -hmm. recently. I mean, you can chuckle and laugh and Melissa was chuckling at me on Zwift the other day, but there is something to be said for doing one of these Zwift rides where there are 300, 500 people. And the way Zwift does it, you're all wearing the same kit mm -hmm. and you all kind of look the same. Sometimes you're on the same bike mm -hmm. and it's a mass start, you know? Um, there's something about that. Yeah, It's different when you're riding by yourself for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think, as you just mentioned, there could be two different types of synchrony. And I, I like Michelle's characterization of just like, you know, being one with the run and you know I, I think i said this during the podcast there are those days where you go running on the trail run and you're just floating and you know it's it's everything's just clicking and a week later on the same course same time of day you're tripping over every rock every route and it's just you're not you're not in sync with what's going on so i do think there are two separate things that have a, a similar effect maybe yeah, I think I think of what you're describing, Michelle, as as flow. Yeah, um, yes. Yeah. And so 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 I think that and I don't think that synchrony and flow have to be have to be opposed to one another. Um, I don't think you have to choose one or the other. Um, but but I think that there are things that you can find in running each of them. And I think that they're both kind of awesome. <laughs> you know, I think what I what I liked about the book sort of from a high level is a lot of it is, is really factual and really black and white, but something like this can be left open to the interpretation or experience of the reader. Mm -hmm. And I think that made the book just even more uh, wonderful to read. Well, okay. So on that point, one thing that I thought was interesting um, and one thing that I really appreciated about the book is, is that um, she like describing this whole 70 years of movement um, and all the various things that, that played in and all the different facets and elements and all that sort of thing of it. Um, it's basically this big mosaic um, yeah. that, that she paints in the book. And when we're interviewing her kind of by necessity, like we can't just literally talk over the whole book we can't just have you know a, a 12 hour conversation and she just walks us through the entire book right um and so by, by necessity we kind of had to like pick out parts of the mosaic or like parts of the painting and say will you describe this one part of the painting to us can you talk just a little bit more about this one part of the painting and so she would and and it's funny because i imagine that there were probably some people listening that hadn't actually read the book that were thinking well, what about this other thing I can almost guarantee you that she addressed that other thing somewhere in the book. Um, yeah. Cause I, I found myself early on in the book saying, 
um, well, what about this? What about this? And then <laughs> invariably she would circle back at, and, and she would actually answer that question. I mean, even with the biographies, I'd be like, well, what about this person? And then she mentioned that person. Right. Um, um, and so she did an extremely thorough job of, of uh, getting all the various facets of this really intricate picture um, and, and I was, I was super impressed by, by that. Um, I can see why it took her five years, um, because it, because it's incredibly thorough. Um, and, and that was one thing that I very much appreciated about it too. Um, and so, yeah, if anybody listened to our conversation and you were like, I don't think she quite told the whole story. She did. We just weren't able to retell the whole story in our, you know, one hour and 10 minute interview with her. <laughs> right. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. You asked me at the beginning, why I thought that was such a, a great interview or one of our better ones. And I just realized something uh, for those of you who don't do a podcast or don't know what we do with ours is after George cuts it, I know at least Michelle and I almost immediately listen to it. I do too. Mm -hmm. Okay. George does too. And I don't know if all podcasters do that. They may, they may not, but almost a hundred percent of the time I hear things that I didn't hear when we were recording the podcast or um, like really I get caught up in something listening to the podcast that I didn't get caught up in during the, during the recording. This one was weird though. Um, I, I didn't, I didn't have those moments and you, you know, someone might say, well, that's cause it was boring. It's like, no, it's cause it was so good. I was so in tune <laughs> for the entire thing that listening to it again, was it was too quick. I needed to wait like a week and a half or two weeks or three weeks later to listen to it again. Mm -hmm. It was so good. I enjoyed the podcast, the actual recording of it so much that I was just honed in on the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So, cool, man. and I, I didn't really realize that till now, but it just dawned upon me. I was like, yeah, that wasn't, I really didn't get into it in the, in the re-listen. I did listen to it, but it wasn't like some of the other ones. Very cool. Well, we obviously need Danielle to write another book. I'm hopeful that it won't be five years because in that five years, so too. <laughs> she got married, she had a baby, we had a pandemic. So that all happened <laughs> the last five years for her. So Danielle, if you're listening, can you go a little faster? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe hold off on the marriages and babies and pandemics. Yeah. <laughs> well, she we dropped about like growing five... her family. We want another book. Yeah. And she dropped like five ideas for the next book mm -hmm. during the podcast. Right. Was like, oh, right. that'd be a great. Oh yeah. I've thought about that, but maybe not yet. You know, I thought it was super interesting that she said that, that uh, she would probably write a biography about Bonnie Pruden. Um, I love and, that. And, and, I, love I, and, I, and I thought that was great. And I thought it was great for a couple of reasons. Number one, because she tells, and I, I mentioned this in the interview with her last week there, she tells some short biographies and she tells some long ones right? Like she talked very briefly about Suzanne Summers, for example, um, and Thymaster. Um, but she devoted an entire chapter to Jane Fonda. She devoted an entire chapter to, to Bonnie Pruden. It was the opening chapter of the book, right? She used her as the entry point to the entire thing. And so for her to say that there's so much more to that story, and she's such a more interesting person than the already very extensive biography of her that I put in the first chapter of the book that I used to kick off this entire thing. Um, that, that makes me think that there really and truly must be a lot of super cool things about her life that would be fascinating and, and enlightening to read. I also thought it was interesting too, that she said something to the effect of how people, her parents age or our parents age 
would be surprised that we don't know who Bonnie Pruden is. Like I wasn't familiar with her before I read this book. And I dare say that neither one of y'all probably were either. Um, And, and so like this, the idea of somebody that was super, that was so well known then um, not being known now, like how that process happens. um, I think that's probably something that she would address. And I think that that would be really interesting to read as well. You know, Um, Hey, along those lines, did either one of you feel like when you were reading some of the longer ones, longer histories, so to say, feel like, wait a minute, she just skipped like 10 years. (laughs) Like, I I just had this moment, like, wait a minute, she was going down this path and like, how did we get here? No, I I didn't feel that way. No, 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 not in a bad way. In In a way where I felt like, what you're saying, she knows so much more about this than she was able to put in this chapter. There was was at least twice. Sorry, if you think about the trends and the waves, I mean, it it tended to be that something would, you know, start and something would come to America. And then that really did just take precedent for 10 or 15 years before you really saw that shift. Yeah, yeah. If anything, I kind of felt the opposite. I felt like she would, she would say, this was super popular. And then four years later, it wasn't like, I, I, I felt like it was the opposite. Like the way that she told the story made it feel like these, these sort of moments in time were, were 15 to 20 years long. And in fact, they were three years long. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I, I kind of felt the opposite, but I, I think maybe what it was is there's just so much <laughs> and there's, there and there's so just much. so many variables and there's so many things happening at one time. Um, and she doesn't go through and be like, this is what happened in 1951. This is what happened in 1952. This is what happened in 1953. I mean, she, she instead kind of writes it thematically so that you'll, she'll go from 51 to 71, then back to 60 and four to 80 and then, and stuff like that. And so I think, I think maybe that's, that's why it might, might've felt that way sometimes. Um, but, but yeah, um, Let's talk about a couple other kind of quick things about her um, that that maybe we didn't quite get the chance to talk about. One thing I wanted to mention because a couple of people actually reached out to me about this and asked me what I was talking about, or when I when I asked her if we had whitewashed um, Catherine Switzer's story, and I mentioned Rosa Parks and I mentioned Helen Keller. And I just kind of tossed those things out there, and so I think it's worth just kind of real briefly mentioning is that. Um, a lot of times when school kids learn the story of Rosa Parks, they learn that she was like a tired old woman sitting down on a bus in the 1950s. And she just refused to give her place up on the bus. And she didn't mean to start the Montgomery bus boycott, but she did because she was just tired. Right. Um, And that completely ignores the fact that Rosa Parks was a secretary at the local NAACP. She had been trained in nonviolent resistance um, she wasn't some tired old lady at that point. She was younger than all three of us. Um, and, and she purposely didn't give up our seat on the bus, not because she was tired and she just wanted to get home, but as an act of, of civil disobedience. Um, she knew she was trying to touch off a movement and ultimately it did. Now, she didn't know it was going to become ultimately the, the active period of the civil rights movement that it did. But that's kind of how movements work is that, you know, you just kind of get in the way and go with the flow, as John Lewis said, you just kind of keep on doing it. And then something catches, something uh, ignites the, the, the movement. Um, and so in a lot of ways, whenever we tell the story of Rosa Parks now, we take away her agency, we take away her politics, we take away who she actually was, 
by, by telling the story in this real kind of inert and, and passive way. And reading the story of Catherine Switzer, it felt like we had done the same thing to her. It felt like we had taken away her politics and we had, and we had focused on, oh no, she wasn't making a statement. She just wanted to go there and run and, and all that sort of thing. And, and there just felt like there was so much more to the story there um, that, that we hadn't told that made it, uh, it made the story feel different to me. Um, and so that, that's kind of what that question was about. And I'm still not totally convinced, by the way. <laughs> um, I'm still not totally convinced that we haven't tried to strip the politics out of Catherine Switzer's story um, in order to make her more palatable to, to the mainstream, um, when in fact she was fairly far outside of the mainstream, yeah. um, particularly following that galvanizing event that, that, that took place when Jock Simple tried to rip a bill off uh, in the middle of the race. Um, so yeah, um, that's kind of what I was talking about with that. Um, but um, all right, let's talk about one last thing. You read a lot of the, the critical reception of it, Michelle. Um, how was her book received? I know you read a lot of the reviews and stuff. I felt like it was received not critically at all, actually. Um, <laughs> I felt like she just did this fine line of, um, you know, not going... If anything, it feels like people would be more critical of her um, staying too far to the middle versus going too far to the left, like in terms of, you know, feminism and, and that type of um, the historical play that that kind of wove through her book. But I just was pretty astounded by all the media sources that picked up the book and that interviewed her and that wrote, um, you know, reviews of it. It was just I mean, I, I printed everything. I, I think, you know, before we interviewed her, I read about a hundred pages of, of print. Um, we saw them of, all yeah. <laughs> on the floor. Around so, the I, so I don't I see how you can treadmill, read on the I, treadmill like that. That's, that's a brilliant <laughs> skill, by the way. But, so yeah. I print everything to paper and then I take a huge stack of paper to the treadmill and I just read and just throw it on the floor. So but when I'm done with the run, <laughs> <laughs> the room looks like a tornado because you never know where it's going to go. <laughs> and it's so annoying to have to pick it up. And sometimes I'll be like, oh, remember that article in L? It was on page 18. There was this quote and it's a disaster trying to remember. <laughs> there's no something. way you can find it. <laughs> no, you can't. I can never find it. Well, if um, that was if that was on the floor around my treadmill, which I don't have or George's, it'd also be all paper mache at that point. Right? Probably. <laughs> So I'm so, you know, I think she mentioned, which I think is interesting, um, how, how well the media, you know, has picked up on it and maybe, um, and we didn't talk about this much, like she's getting, maybe it seemed like a lot more media attention and, and all most like incredibly positive. Um, but the sales, it didn't seem like were, you know, is, is parallel to what the, the hype seems like it is when you see her online or you see her on the Today Show or you see her on Good Morning America or you see it's a New York Times bestseller for nonfiction. Um, so I, I wanted to reach back out to her and ask her a little bit more about that. But I generally speaking, I mean, it was written up in Vogue and I it wasn't online and I went and bought the magazine. <laughs> Just because I didn't want to wait for it to come online 10 days later. I mean, I obviously, I don't know, I got really into this book, but um, so I think, you know, I, it's just great to see um, all these various sources picking up on such an important topic. And I think, you know, we talked about the parts about privilege and diversity, equality, inclusion, and women's history. And I think she, 
like she said, I think she indicated this is really kind of just the beginning of a lot of this and to have all these various media outlets pick it up um, and almost unanimously positive. I thought it was just great to read. So that was my experience kind of trying to read everything I could get my hands on that, you know, came across either her Twitter or her husband's Twitter or just yeah. Googling. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, I mean, it, that doesn't surprise me that, that, you know, sort of mainstream media has, has, has really enjoyed it and thought it was great. I mean, I think she was really trying to thread a difficult needle here and she's trying to tell um, a history and a feminist history um, while, while at the same time, not alienating a large segment of the population that sees the word feminism as a bad word. Um, and she kind of talked about, she, she at least referenced the sort of loaded nature of the word feminist. Um, but but um, she wanted to sort of talk about the aspects of feminism that we all agree with. Um, and that, that, that um, most of us, even those who, who think feminism is, is a bad word, um, would still be be okay with around the equality of sexes and equality of opportunity and things like that. Um, I, yeah, you mentioned that I think maybe some of the criticism that she could be open to um, could come from the left. Um, for example, like I, you know, I asked her that question early on about um, about how things will start off as liberatory and and as means of empowerment for women, and then they get co-opted by marketing and and various other companies and that sort of thing and that was a real opportunity for her to just go to town on capitalism you know and she didn't and she didn't <laughs> and um, you and wanted she, her to so so, bad. so i didn't want her to necessarily but but I, I i thought it would be interesting if she did um and um and she didn't um and she doesn't in the book either um and so so no but she gets right on the edge i mean she <laughs> she doesn't but she doesn't yeah. go across the edge i yeah. would say but i think that it but i think that if if she had written in that book particularly if she had written it over and over and over again, because like we said, like she comes back to that theme a lot um, of, of things are, are liberatory and then they get sort of commodified. Um, if she had actually written about like capitalism continually uh, commodifying these things that otherwise had a whole lot of meaning, um, I think that that would have turned a lot of people off. Um, at the same time, I mean, I'm sure that there's um, like some some reviews on Goodreads uh, and Amazon that probably take her to task for not coming out sure. more strongly against capitalism. So it's just a difficult needle to thread. Um, and, and I think she did a good job with it um, because I think it, it is palatable for the mainstream. Yeah, um, yeah for sure. For sure. Um, all right. Any last words on Danielle's great book? Um, uh, kudos, Michelle, for uh, for for choosing it. Can I actually take credit for choosing it? No. What? Why? How? Well, b- How because you because you actually didn't suggest it as a book of the quarter. You posted on your Facebook page, "I can't wait to read this book," and it had a picture of it. And I said, "Why don't we make that our book of the quarter?" And you said, "Okay, that sounds great." I mean, just because. Well, no, you can't have credit. <laughs> I, I've waited a long time to pick a book that you really enjoyed. And you did. And you did. And it was fantastic. And I very much did enjoy it. And so let's mention then what our next book of the quarter is, um, unless you have a last word on, uh, on Danielle and uh, let's get physical, Eric. 
No more last words. All right, no more last words. Um, at least not about Danielle and let's get physical. Um, the next book of the quarter, and this is the book for Q2 of 2022. Um, that would be for April, May, and June of 2022. It's called Out of Thin Air by Michael Crawley. Um, the subtitle is uh, Running Wisdom and Magic from Above the Clouds in Ethiopia. It came out in January of last year, and so it's been out for about a year. Um, and uh, it's all about uh, the training camps um, and the ways of life of elite runners in Ethiopia. Um, and so we've talked about Addy Finn and on this podcast before we read uh, Rise of the Ultra Runners um, a little while ago. Um, and Addy Finn has to say about this book, uh, full of wonderful insights and lessons from a world where the ability to run is viewed as something almost mysterious and magical. Um, uh, the author, Michael Crawley, um, is a PhD in anthropology, um, and so he does something similar to what Addie Finn did um, in that he immerses himself in this community. Same thing that Addie Finn did with Running with the Kenyans, um, but I think he'll bring a slightly more um, academic uh, eye to it than, than Addy Finn did. Um, that's not to take anything away from Addy Finn necessarily, but I think maybe we'll end up with some, some, some richer and more complex insights, um, to the world of Ethiopian distance running, um, such as the type that we got from, from Danielle from Let's Get Physical. Um, not to be outdone, also uh, uh, saying good things about it was none other than Haile Geber Selassie uh, said, through reading this book, you will come to understand that the heart and soul of running are to be found in Ethiopia. Um, and then none other than Alex Hutchinson, who a uh, friend of the podcast, who we've had on episode number 100 of this podcast, uh, he said, it's a deep dive into the rich and complex culture that produces some of the best runners the world has ever seen. So um, I will be going to Avid Bookshop um, and picking up a copy of Out of Thin Air, Running Wisdom and Magic from Above the Clouds in Ethiopia by Michael Crawley. Um, and we'll be talking about that come July. Sound good? Sounds, Sounds good. good. All right. Do not mistake this with um, the Out of Thin Air documentary or the out Dog of thin air. hour so yeah is that i think that was into thin air isn't it, it is. uh, no there's uh actually a documentary film well, there's a documentary also on Netflix. but it has nothing to do with john krakauer i don't believe yeah no you're totally right and then like i uh when when i when i was searching for it in other places there's another book called out of thin air by a woman named mary crawford that's like a romance novel um, <laughs> um and then there's another one i think called out of thin air that's like a like a uh, coffee table book of photos from 9-11 um, and so yeah this is a fairly you know the idea of thin air is a fairly well-known title uh, sort of like Danielle was talking about that she's glad she didn't name her book sweat because there was another book that came yeah. out like two weeks later that was also named sweat um, <laughs> I think so. the Netflix documentary is like a murder mystery or something <laughs> <laughs> you know, if yeah. that's what you get to you got the wrong thing <laughs> I just imagine somebody like watching that documentary and going this is an interesting choice. <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear them talk about this. Well done, George. <laughs> yes, no. Uh, the one about the runners in Ethiopia. So I, I am looking forward to this one. I probably myself won't start reading it for another couple of weeks here. We got to finish out this semester. Um, but uh, but uh, as soon as we do, I will uh, start reading it. And so I'm excited about that. Very good. Um all right, let's quickly talk about the Boston Marathon because we cannot release a podcast a few days before the Boston Marathon without at least mentioning that there is a marathon on Marathon Monday next week. Uh, Michelle, 
you're not traveling to Boston for the marathon. How do you feel about that? I'm really happy that I'm not <laughs> running a marathon on Monday. And I'm really, um, it's been a long time since I've honestly feel no sort of uh, desire or anticipation or excitement or jealousy or FOMO uh, to be in Boston, but it is very exciting marathon Monday coming back for the first time in almost three years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the field, the women's field specifically is amazing. I mean, I think everybody who's everybody in American marathoning, well, as I say that, (laughs) let's just, uh, except for Sarah Hall. Qualifiers. So the American record holder is not running. Kira Ramato mm. is sitting Boston out because she's really focusing on trying to be ready for the track trials to make the 10K or 5K or maybe both team for worlds. Um, and then also notably Sarah Hall and Kellen Taylor pulled out with injury in the last week or so. But really almost everybody else who's marathoning in American in America right now for the elite women is going to be there. And I was, I was actually looking at the start list and um, she falls maybe eight or ninth down, but Des is actually the fastest American runner and her time that seats her eighth or ninth is, is the 222 from Boston from her runner up in 2011 race. So, but yeah, I'm super excited to, to just watch uh, on my couch. <laughs> so are, are you going to take time to actually sit on your couch and watch it on Monday? Because I've done that before. I'm not going to be able to do that on Monday. Just my schedule is going to prevent me from doing it. But it's super fun when you can just kind of take the day off on Marathon Monday and you follow it on Twitter and you follow it online and you just watch the whole thing. Are you going to be able to do that? I should be able to. I, oh, I don't. I'm, uh, I am on. It's a little complicated, but I do think that next Monday I will be able to pretty much do whatever I want um, and watch this. I'm on PTO for Passover holiday. So it will depend a little bit on kind of what my kids get up and want to do. But if, if I explain to them that Boston's on, they'll probably just <laughs> run away from me <laughs> and let and say, well, let me know when you're ready to talk, mom. <laughs> so Very good. Um, yeah. Very good. Very good. Um, and then the men's field, it's the fastest men's field that's ever been been compiled as fast as women's field has ever been compiled as well i believe right um i, yeah, mean, I mean between between perez jeff Tichir and jocelyn kazgai and and degatu azameru and and edna kiplagat i mean you have four women who are going to be on the starting line that have run under 220 before three two of whom three of whom have run under 218 that's um, right it's important just to remember that the only other world marathon major option you know for these elite runners that go out, you know, for these paydays was Tokyo. And even that was super limited. Mm -hmm. Um, Very few people could even get in. So with London, again, being postponed to the fall, Boston really got uh, two of the fastest fields they've probably ever had. Mm -hmm. But I know, George, we were excited. um, I just lost the name of my Oh, because I know, George, we were excited to see Bekele run Boston, but he's pulled out now. So yeah. And, and, that's and that's, kind of a bummer. that's a bummer. Yeah. So Kenanisa Bekele was supposed to run, you know, the second fastest marathoner of all time. Um, and one of the greatest all around runners of all time. And I was super excited to, to watch him run to see what he was going to do, but he's such a mercurial runner over the course of the past few years. Like he won't really run all that much and then he'll go out and bust a, you know, two Oh one forty. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah. Um, 
I, I, I was bummed about that, but, but you just can't be too disappointed by those sorts of things because that's just kind of who he is at this point in his career. Um, but yeah, even, even without him being there, um, you still have uh, Berhanu Legese, who's run under 203. I mean, he's the third fastest marathoner of all time behind, behind Bekele and, and, uh, and of course, Eli Kipchoge. Uh, he's run 20248. He ran that in Berlin in 2019. Um, and then you have one, two, three, four, four more guys that have run under 204. And one, two, three, three more guys that have run under two more 205. Um, and so, yeah, the, the, the men's field is insanely fast this year. Um, you have to go way down the list in order to get to Scott Fobble and Colin Benny, who are the fastest Americans that are entered. Um, and they've uh, merely run 209. <laughs> um, and so Jared Ward's going to be there again because um, he can't not run the Boston Marathon, I feel like. Um, uh, Jake Riley is going to be there, um, who of course, uh, qualified for the Olympics, uh, here in Atlanta in 2020, which is when he, where he ran his PR, um, Matt McDonald, formerly of the, uh, the, the, um, Atlanta track club. And now a part of the BAA is going to be there. Matt Yano, CJ Albertson. We've already talked about several times on this podcast, um, and on and on and on, uh, J- Josh Zuski, who's a, a friend of the podcast, uh, through zap, uh, endurance, uh, Tyler Pence, who's also with Zap Endurance, um, several others there. So, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a fun race to watch. It's going to be a fun so race to watch. I have a question. Yeah. Being the only non-marathoner on the podcast, well, I was going to say, yeah, I, I asked Michelle <laughs> how she feels about not going to the marathon. Um, I, I should ask you also, how do you feel about you know the marathon coming up, knowing that you're going to be there in 2023? I'm not going to be there. In <laughs> that's not really sure. That's cool, that's man. Just keep downplaying it. We all know that 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 you have this low key qualify for Boston and go to Boston goal and back your head. It's okay. We all heard it. Back to the question I was going to ask. <laughs> going, you know, CJ Albertson. We we talked about him recently. What do you think with this really fast group of men's runners in such a deep group mm-hmm. what do you think the first 16 miles of this race is going to look like great question yeah great question so, um, i think it's important to remember that even though we have the fastest fields ever assembled at boston like boston is the ultimate equalizer i mean you've got to run the race smart you've like i swear if you can run the tangents there that's always going to be the person that gets the best chance at the break. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what a lot of these super speedy runners do. And if they do, you know, try to run up to their full potential on the course, like who's going to be able to make it 26.2 miles at a pace they might otherwise run in a place like Berlin or London. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's going to be carnage galore. I think it's going to be awesome. (laughs) If, I mean, if you look at the, the, the fastest guys, um, they ran their times at Berlin, Valencia, Valencia, Berlin, Valencia, Dubai, Dubai. Um, and so those are all like time trial marathons. Um, they're super flat and they have these pacers and they go out there to run fast. And that's not what the Boston Marathon is. The Boston Marathon won't have pacers and it's not a place where people go to run really fast times. Um, and so how are these, these men who have run wickedly insanely fast time trial style marathons how are they going to do in a race that's not just a time trial yeah this is why i'm watching it on monday this is i'm 
undivided attention. I think it'll be fascinating. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. So is this going to be sort of a, a pack mentality and you're just going to watch people float off the back and then there'll be some, you know, real big move around 15, 17, as you get into the flats, I guess, actually, that's the rolling portion, right? So it'd be, it'd be, it'd be 21 when you got basically out, out of the hills and back onto the flat. So you, you crest okay. Heartbreak Hill at right at mile 21. No, okay. I think somebody will try to make a move closer to 17, honestly, if it's a big pack. Mm -hmm. Do you think anybody's going to try and steal it? I think somebody will. I mean, why not? Yeah. <laughs> We've seen that work. Come on, yeah. remember? I, the great, greatest American marathoner of the past decade, Mev Kofleski, he stole it in 2014 and it was awesome. Yeah. Um, it was great. He, he, he went out, he built enough of a lead to where they couldn't catch him. They just couldn't catch him. Right. Um, and, and that's, that is a legit strategy to win the Boston marathon. Um, other people in addition to Mev Kofleski have used it. Yeah. And so CJ Albertson tried to use it last year and, and couldn't quite do it. Um, he did hang he tries again. well. He, oh, he, he did. He, he ran a brilliant race. Um, I hope he does it again. So I do too. I do too. <laughs> but, but, it, but it'll be interesting to see whether these, these other guys whose PRs are literally nine minutes faster than him. So they literally would beat him by nearly two miles um, in, in a time trial style race. Um, it's, it'll be interesting to see whether any of them try it too. You know, I mean, the guy who currently has the, the seventh fastest time um, is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Lalisa DeCisa, who is a very accomplished marathoner, right? Um, and and he's run 204.45. What's to stop Lalisa DeCisa from, from going out there and, and just throwing down 450 pace for the first 20 miles? Because um, that's something he's capable of doing. So my last question about that, though. You mentioned that these best times were run on these time trial like courses. Mm -hmm. How many of their times off of those time trial courses or times at our course like Boston are within, you know, a couple minutes of their best time? Mm. Yeah. It, you know what I'm, you know, what my question is there like, like what, what, what is their second best time or what's their best time in a non time trial style race? Right. Like CJ yeah. Albertson Don't know. maybe hasn't run a time trial style, right. style race. So right. like his times, yeah. you know, like we talk about championship 10 K runners or 5,000 runners versus world yeah. record holders. Right. Yeah. Don't know. I mean, and I think, and I think that's, that matters. I think that's a statistic that matters. Um, but that's just obviously not something they release in the, uh, in the press release, <laughs> you know, Berhano Legesi, he's run 202.48 in Berlin, but at a much more tactical marathon, he ran this other time. And this might reflect what his true ability is in a straight up, in a, in a, a more tactical race. Yeah. That's not really something they talk about, but, you know, but we'll see, maybe, maybe we'll find out, right. Maybe we'll find out. Um, all right. Um, we should have a last word here about the Boston marathon. Eric, I'm going to let you have the last word about the Boston Marathon because you have an athlete who's running it. Yep. My last word is uh, good luck, James. You've put in the work. Um, my runner, James, is going out to Boston and he's looking for a, a 256 or better. Um, it's not going to be easy. 
I don't think any, you know, PR level effort is easy and Boston's not going to be an easy course, but he's definitely put in the work. He's, he's been putting down the workouts, uh, George and say, thanks for some help with some final, final thoughts for James on pacing strategies and whatnot, because I obviously don't have a lot of experience running a marathon or Boston specific. Um, and, uh, I think now you, it's you, just, you will this time two years from now. <laughs> I think at this point for James, who is the topic of discussion, um, <laughs> it's, about, it's about execution. And if, if there's anything that he has done and that he is just the best at, it's just executing when, 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 awesome. things, when things need to be done. He just, he just does it. The guy's a, he's a tank. So I'm Perfect. super excited to you know, track him through the race, talk to him about it afterwards. Um, just best of luck, James. Best of luck, James, indeed. Good luck, James. Michelle, final word on the Boston Marathon. Oh, I'm just I, Boston is not was not good for me. I don't I don't want to talk about Boston. <laughs> right. I don't know. There's some <laughs> internal reckoning that still needs to be take place. It's just I'm I'm good with sitting this one out. So <laughs> I, I'll be interested to hear whether uh, whether watching the race on Monday helps you uh, finish off your processing of your own experience there in 2021. We'll see. Uh, finishing off the processing would be good, but making me want to be there again would be very bad. I really, <laughs> please, <laughs> however many hundred people listen to this, hold me accountable to this. I do not want to go back there. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. So. Thanks y'all. All right. Thank you, George. Thanks. Enjoyed it. Thanks again for listening to the most pleasant exhaustion podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasant podcast, on Twitter at pleasant podcast, or on Instagram, most pleasant exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's slayrx.com, facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx. And Instagram, here for SlayRx, the number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT22. On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.